This podcast was recorded on the date indicated with the link. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide updates or changes. All right, welcome to the Sherman Show. I am Jeff Sherman, along with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And even though Lau didn't put it on my little cheat sheet, today is Thursday, May 4th, 2023, for compliance purposes. Everything Michael says here today will be recorded and put out there, but it's as of May 4th and not as of uh, any other date. So uh, those of you who don't know who is with us today, I said Michael already. I gave you a little sneak peek. We have Michael Faroli. He is J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. economist. Um, Mike, big fan of your work over the years. I think you, you put out a lot of great stuff. Um, we just had a Fed meeting, so we figured, what better day to bring you in uh, than after we just heard from our Fed chairman that the banking system is sound and stable. <laughs> you know. So again, welcome to our show. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here, Jeff. Yeah, let's hope. Uh, you know, it was interesting. I think he gave. A few hints there, and, and presumably the Fed has, you know, through their stewardship of Fedwire, a little bit more timely look into bank deposit situations than, you know, the HA is delayed by what, 10, 10 days. So, 10 days, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of hopeful that he once again, like he did at the March meeting, signal or say that the deposit situation looks stable. So hopefully, you know, he's not, uh, he's not. Um, you know, getting getting us off the track there, but I think that's um, yeah. Well, it's it's also a, a function of are you looking in aggregate that there's stability, or is he going yeah. case by case, which I think is what kind of market's looking at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I mean, having deposits flow from smaller banks to more stable GSIBs is not going to be what the doctor ordered right now. But uh, yeah. presumably, I think Powell knows that and knows well. Certainly knows that, and I think that's what he was trying to communicate yesterday. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, I know we jumped into it. I can't resist ta- talking, you know, wonky, uh, you know, Fed speak uh, with with a with an economist. Yep. So um, maybe just rewind a little bit. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of background on who Michael Faroli is and how you got to where you are at J.P. Morgan today. Yeah, it was a pretty circuitous route, I think, compared to most of my um, counterparts. So I actually studied. Philosophy undergrad. Uh, I was started a grad program in philosophy. Was going to get my PhD in, in philosophy, and then at a certain point, I realized I wanted to kind of get back into the hurly burly of the real world. Uh, pivoted and got my PhD in economics from NYU. Okay. Uh, after that, I um, my first job out of grad school was at the Federal Reserve Board uh, in Washington D.C. Uh, at that time, Alan Greenspan was chair. Um, ben Bernanke was a governor, so I got to see both of them in action uh, in an interesting comparison and contrast of their, you know, thought uh, styles of thought. I, I guess one would say. Um, so I was at the board, what what we call the board, what most people call the, the Fed, uh, the Washington-based Fed. I was at the board for about four years, and after that, 
uh, I decided to jump over to the private sector uh, and JP Morgan came calling. And I came to JP Morgan in early 2006 and have uh, have been here ever since. So that's kind of how I, how I got here. Yeah, um, it's funny. I, well, I don't know if it's funny, but it's uh, it's interesting. You said you started, you know, with philosophy, then went to the real world of economy, uh, economics. <laughs> um, I know another uh, successful finance person that studied philosophy, and uh, I call him successful because he's also my boss. So um, <laughs> that's where uh, that's where Jeffrey Gunlock uh, he started off. Uh, yeah, he was a dual math and philosophy major, and he was saying that you know the dissertation he wanted to write was the non-existence of infinity, and you know trying to bring the two things together. And uh, you know his advisor wouldn't let him. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but um, let, let's let's talk about that real world too, because you know there's there's been a lot of punditry that's been speaking about potential disconnects between financial markets today and the real economy. And what is the real economy to a lot, a lot of people kind of call it Main Street versus Wall Street, right? It's, it's, it's a nice little sexy little like hook to put in there. So what are you seeing in the economy today? You know, as you, you kind of look under the hood, you see the evolution of things. And let's keep the banking system aside right now. Sure. Like sure. Where, where were you, let's say at the end of February, thinking about the economy and potentially how does that look different today? Or, you know, uh, again, just... Uh, kind of laying out what the roadmap looks like today in the U.S. economy. Yeah. So, I mean, if I had to just summarize it in, you know, a few words, I think the economy still looks very, uh, most growth indicators still look pretty robust. And I think what we're, it's interesting, it feels like we are still even now, um, three years after uh, after the pandemic, still really living through the aftershocks of, of that. And in particular, I think what you see, and I know we'll probably, I don't want to jump the gun by going straight into the labor market, uh, given that this is jobs week after all. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you look at some of the areas that are, you know, continuing to show really above trend uh, growth in hiring. It's a lot of the catch up hiring from the pandemic in particular. Uh, I think everyone knows about leisure and hospitality or talks about leisure and hospitality. But I think equally as important is healthcare. Healthcare hiring is uh, healthcare employment is still uh, almost a million below uh, the pre-pandemic trend, which you know we generally. And I think what's interesting about this is you know healthcare is obviously a very important part of the economy. We generally think of this as being a very acyclical part of the economy, and yet you're seeing some really um, strong growth from depressed levels. And I think, and another interesting aspect of that is in both leisure and hospitality and healthcare uh, and education, these are all sectors that are you know, historically, uh, for good reason, considered very interest insensitive. And so you think about uh, the tool the Fed has is really just one tool is the interest rate. Generally, you think about it works well on construction and manufacturing or let's say construction in the goods economy, so manufacturing, and then maybe trade, transportation, warehousing, kind of all that goods infrastructure space. Uh, and you are starting to see, I think, some of the uh, intended effects of those rate hikes in that part of the economy. But the part that, loosely speaking, the Fed doesn't control is growing at such a, you know, continues to grow at such a brisk, above-trend pace that I think it creates this... Um, 
you know, forecasting challenge for them, which is particularly, I think, Jay Powell, maybe for good reason, doesn't, uh, maybe he thought he got burned by forecasts in the past and doesn't show a lot of faith in forecasting. And so, you know, you're, you're working on this economy where you, you think some of this above trend growth in these interest incentive sectors should peter out over time. Uh, and so therefore you might not want to overdo it now, but it does, I think, create a, a bit of a, a challenge because oftentimes when you think about the way the business cycle works is generally those interest sensitive sectors are the ones that get kind of frothy toward the end of the cycle, right? So it's kind of like, it's a nice kind of divine coincidence that the Fed's tools tend to work on the sectors, which get, you know, a little bit out of whack when, uh, when the cycle is on the tooth. Um, now I think that sort of divine coincidence is a little bit broken, which creates some dilemmas here for the Fed. So you mentioned it being broken, and I want to come back to something else you said about the interest rate sensitive, but you, you talk about it potentially being broken. Uh, you know, as I thought about this coming into 23, you know, I was of the mindset that, that maybe this transmission mechanism, albeit not broken, is delayed yeah. with some of that being the, the refinancing of corporate America, the consumer you know, refinancing the mortgages. And so Usually when the Fed is hiking, you're trying to slow down the credit creation through higher interest rates, but so much of the weighted average cost of capital is so low, right? Yeah. And yeah. so is is you know, how does that factor into your thinking right now? And you know, again, you mentioned kind of that manufacturing component that it is because you know they they run kind of a you know they have cash flow needs, right? And so they need yeah. to borrow more frequently. So how, how do you think about that? And is it not that it's broken, but it's just been somewhat delayed um, through the cycle? Yeah, no, I do think. All right, so you always have long, uh, long lags, and I think if you look at historical parallels, one of my colleagues, he's kind of actually has a note out coming out of it shortly, is what we're seeing now is not at all um, that unusual in terms of not having the unemployment rate uh, increase, you know, within a year after the first rate hike. Um, so there are lags, and I think uh, if I'm interpreting you correctly, I, I would think actually that the fact that corporates have um, turned out so much of their financing should actually make the lags longer. Right? That's, yeah, that's yeah. what I was going with it, right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but the Fed put out a paper that said the lag should be shorter in the cycle because of forward guidance, right? It's yeah, almost so like a pat I, on the back, like we're gonna, we're doing a great job. It's gonna, it's already <laughs> yeah. in, right? Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I, so I think there are arguments. Um, there are arguments that go in both directions. Uh, yeah. uh, I think in terms of lags, certainly, you know, humility is is warranted. But um, I think when it comes to cost of capital, you know, definitely it, it should stretch out the lag length. Uh, a friend of mine made this analogy, which I wish I thought of because I think it's so great in terms of thinking about just what you're talking about, which is, you know. You go to the gym and you do a plank and it's easy for 10 seconds, but after two minutes, it's not so easy. So we're at 5% interest rates and everyone's like, oh, look, the economy looks uh, fine. You know, but the longer we're at 5% interest rates, the more that debt structure has to get refinanced at higher rates and the more that's going to pressure uh, certainly corporate profitability. Um, so we do think that, you know, given all that, I think it makes sense, um, you know, for the Fed to to pause here, which seems to be what they signaled, you know, yesterday, albeit tentatively. 
Yeah. Um, what, what do you make of the bond market um, saying that the Fed's done at this point? I mean, one point yesterday, we had like a 5 10% probability, which is effectively zero, right? Or it's so yeah. close. Uh, it's infinitesimally small. But it is probably a hike. Then as the day went on, you know, it's like there's no more hikes. They you know, kind of have this curve leaning down. Um, yeah. it, it's obviously not the path. The Fed's not going to follow the path of the bond market. But wh- what do you make out of what, what the bond market is signaling? I mean, look, the two-year Treasury is at 375 today, or at least yeah. it was, and you know, 30 minutes ago. And mm-hmm. so it's at 375, but you have Fed funds here on the upper end at five and a quarter. Kind of said the bond market says you're not staying there very long. What do yeah. you make of what do you make of all of that putting those two things together? Yeah, so I mean, so first of all, I, I mean, one thing I would say about the pricing for June uh, and I think the rhetoric more generally coming out of Powell yesterday is, you know, when I uh, look and listen to Powell, I think he reminds me in some ways of Greenspan and that Greenspan. Uh, I think Greenspan liked discretion and Greenspan liked the option to do what he wanted to do, regardless of, uh, you know, what the models, optimal control models or whatever else would say. So I think Powell kind of wanted to preserve a little bit of that optionality to exercise discretion at the next meeting. Now, in terms of the pricing of, of cuts, and I think a number of, um, of analysts uh, in the interstate market have made this observation is that, you know, the market isn't saying, you know, the Fed's going to cut exactly, you know, whatever number, but they're pricing in some probability, some tail probability that, uh, you know, even if your most likely scenario is to believe the Fed that they're going to be on hold this year, you can't, you know, but think there's a decent chance that you could have a much more rapid, uh, you know, pace of um, a much more rapid uh, cutting cycle, particularly, uh, again, I don't want to jump the gun here. You know, debt ceiling has come into focus this week with the letters from both Secretary uh, Yellen and and CBO Director Swagel. You know, if we go off the cliff there, um, it's not hard to have a scenario where the Fed has to cut pretty aggressively. Uh, So if you want to, you know, I don't know what type of probability and how exactly you're going to arrive at that probability. But if you want to put in some probability for us going off the cliff, either by design or by accident, then you know, the pricing doesn't seem that crazy, even if you kind of believe what the Fed is telling us. Right. I mean, a, a 25 basis point cut within a couple of meetings is just, you know, 10% probability of a 250, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you can yeah, mathematically yeah, yeah. get there is what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I, I don't think even, I would imagine even the Fed, well, you know, actually it's, it feels like the Fed has stopped protesting the market pricing, right? So, if you roll back, I think about six months, it felt like there was almost this like petulance about, you know, why is the Fed, you know, pricing cuts here? And I think, I thought yesterday, one of the things uh, Powell was pretty, uh, well, obviously scripted and, and prepared to, to tread around was this idea of the market pricing cuts. He just said, look, everyone has their own economic scenario. Our scenario is that the economy, you know, inflation is going to be, uh, relatively sticky coming down, and so we're we're going to need to stay here, and you know just kind of laid it out without protesting. I thought the um, the market, which is you know I think that's what they should be doing, which is saying you know everyone had everyone's free to have their own economic scenario. We just want to make sure that you know how the market sees us responding to yeah. those scenarios is like properly tuned, right? 
You know, it, it's funny because he did say that like two meetings ago, right? He said, well, I'm not here to debate forecast. You know, the bond market's different than that. Like we all have different. So, I mean, he, he kind of did say that previously. So maybe he's felt yeah. I don't have to repeat myself. But one thing before we shift gears, I know Sam has a bunch of questions too, and I'm hogging all the time here, but you mentioned about the monetary tool. And there's a question in the press conference that was talking about the separation kind of theorem. I, I'm, I'm talking yeah. mathematically separation there. Yeah. The separation principle uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, of, of the financial stability versus monetary policy. And so, you know, now we're sitting here with the banking problem. They, they've kind of resurrected, you know, or created some new facilities to help provide liquidity. You know, mm-hmm. they've opened a discount window more frequently. They, they've done some things for, let's say, financial stability. Does does that, in your mind, it, does that conflict with what they're doing on the rate side, right? Because they're providing liquidity to help ease conditions that way, but they're tightening. Like, yeah. how, how do you think about that separation principle, uh, not theorem? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing to, to, to I guess, mention is, so arguably Bernanke uh, coined the term separation principle in 2000, yep. I believe it was 2006, right? Yeah, so, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was use the right tool for the problem, right? So if you have financial stability, use your supervision, regulation, you know, lender of last resort tools. And then for the macro economy, use your you know, fund rate. Um, now, he got a little bit chastened by that. And I think in 2010, gave it, or 11, gave kind of a mea culpa speech where he said, look, these things always bleed over. And, you know, the financial stability problems are going to affect the macro economy. And, uh, and vice versa, actually. So um, now that being said, yes, that's trying to slow the economy. I, I, you know, but I'm very sympathetic to what they're doing, which is you want to slow it in a, <laughs> you know, in a controlled kind of linear way rather than having, um, uh, you know, a string of bank failures, right? So I don't, I don't think that's, um, um, you know, to me, kind of. Uh, Problem and, and in some ways, the separation principle is is almost in, you know kind of written into the Federal Reserve Act, where Congress gives them has given them a bunch of different responsibilities, and so um, you know I think they're trying to meet all those responsibilities at the same time, rather than say, all right, our macro responsibility leads us to kind of have to jettison our financial stability responsibility. But uh, you know, but I did also think that Powell kind of tried to almost get the second version of Bernanke in there yesterday where he said, ah, you know, let's not get too cute about like, you know, neatly separating these things because you, you just can't do it. Right. Yeah. I yeah we always wanted to steal a complex system into basic terms, but Sam, I promised I'd let you ask a question. So let me shut up for a second. All right. Let's, uh, let's keep it on Bernanke kind of, but shift it more towards just, I guess, the economy side of things. I know he was doing a little dancing up there yesterday as he always does. He's gotten a lot better at <laughs> But, um, you know, the the notion of soft landing was brought up again. He kind of sidestepped it a bit. But just uh, interested in hearing your views on economic activity here in the U.S. in light of monetary policy, perhaps uh, people doubling it to hawkish pause. We've got the debt ceiling, a whole host of issues out there. We're going to wait to see the jobs market come out this Friday. Yeah. Um, You know, there's a narrative of the rolling recession out there before. You know, we're going to avoid we could potentially even avoid a soft landing, have no no landing type of scenarios. 
mm-hmm. you think it's possible? I mean, under this, I mean, things are starting to build up. You know, we always yeah. say that the, the Fed continues down their hawkish, you know, aggressive tightening until something mm-hmm. breaks. And it's hard to say mm-hmm. at this point that perhaps cracks aren't forming, at least in some corners of the banking, you know, sector mm-hmm. there. So is a recession avoidable this time around? Right. Let's just call for the next 18 months. Yeah, I guess I would kind of rephrase the question is as can we have a uh, adequate disinflation without a recession, right? In other words, if you can say, oh, we avoided a recession, but we haven't uh, disinflated the economy back down to 2%, well, then the Fed's going to have to do more, which probably gets us to the recession. So uh, now the question is, can we get back to 2% without um, a recession? Um, The models would say probably not. Right. And uh, I actually presented a paper with a few uh, co-authors uh, earlier this year, um, which was commented on by a few Fed officials, uh, where we said, you know, if you just look at a basic Phillips curve model and kind of invert it to get core PCE from 4.6 to 2, the kind of unemployment rate that is usually associated with that uh, would be recession, right? So then you say, all right, why, how could that Phillips curve be wrong? I think there's a lot of ways it could be wrong because Phillips curves haven't done a very good job, um, particularly in this cycle. So one thing you could say is, well, look, this inflation is very poorly explained by the Phillips curve. So even if you do, which we did in our paper, a lot of almost jerry-rigging to get slack to drive the inflation story that we've seen. And when I say jerry-rig, use the vacancy to unemployment ratio instead of the unemployment rate itself, or you put in some non-linearities, and then you can get slack explained getting inflation up to three and change. But you can't get it to you know explain all the inflation that we've seen. So you have this, this error term. If you assume that error term kind of reverses over time, then you know, then the amount of kind of intrinsic slack-driven disinflation um, or slack-driven inflation that you need to reverse isn't maybe as uh, you know big a, a, a hill to climb, and that you can actually get by without that much um, um, uh, damage to activity. And I would say one of the interesting things um, that we've seen, and uh, uh, Jeff mentioned the date earlier to, uh, is. Earlier this week, we saw the jolts number, which job openings continue to come down. And one of the interesting kind of debates we had started last year between some heavy hitters, uh, Blanchard and Summers on one side, and Chris Waller and uh, Andrew Figura, former uh, colleague of mine, that had this debate about how much I mentioned a moment ago, the vacancy to unemployment ratio. Uh, how much normalization of that can we get through a decline in vacancies, which is kind of painless, versus an increase in unemployment, which is painful. And we have gone over the past uh, six to nine months from that ratio being two to being 1.6. Now, normal could be maybe 1.2. So we've, we've almost halfway normalized that BU ratio without uh, much pain in the labor market, so without any pain in the labor market. So, you know, there is a case that's not just like completely pie-eyed optimism uh, to say, you know, there's a path to um, 
uh, to a soft landing. You know, I guess another possibility here is that um, uh, the recession could be a bit of a self-defeating uh, prophecy, which is if you look at, for example, something like the uh, survey of professional forecasters, Billy Fed, they do this quarterly survey where they ask, uh, what's your year ahead recession probability? Late last year, that got to the most elevated by far it's been since uh, the survey began in 1970 around then. So it's not, it's not, it's not very common for professional forecasters to say we're going to have a recession, right? I yeah. think that was actually one of the questions there is that you're an implicit forecast from the Fed or recession. Professionals are all saying it. So, you know, we like to say when everybody talks about it, it means it's not going to happen. But, you know, <laughs> again, I, I wanted to interrupt you on that just because of that point, right? It is, I mean, it is almost the most bearish tone we've seen on the yeah. US economy in history. Yeah. Well, at least no. in financial recorded history, let's say. <laughs> right. Uh, now, I think in financial markets, there's an obvious reason to believe that when everyone believes something, it's not going to happen because it should already be reflected in the price. Now, in the real yeah. economy, it's not you know, so simple a story, but one could tell a story whereby, um, you know, if everyone believes a recession's coming next year, you're not going to load up on leverage. You're not going to, you know, invest in rescue projects. You're going to, you know, kind of avoid the type of overreach that usually precedes a recession. Um, uh, so this is sometimes uh, uh, sometimes called the Pigovian theory of the business cycle, which is the business cycle uh, ends when you know euphoria builds up over time, and then something small negative thing happens, but there's so much euphoria that everything has to kind of um, activity has to really uh, reset. Now, if you never really have that euphoria because everyone's expecting recession, you know, the recession might not come. So <laughs> that could be another story about why you uh, avoid uh, the downturn is that it's kind of a self-defeating prophecy. But again, for that to work, I still kind of come back to the inflation story, which is, all right, let's say, you know, that dynamic keeps us out of recession. But then if we still have an inflation problem, the Fed's going to have to restart at some point, which then, you know, then we're going to have to restart the debate about uh, the recession story. So to me, it really just comes down to, um, you know, whether you can have a painless disinflation. Well, um, also on that front, too, as you think through it, like, as I kind of look back to the data, you know, at, at least kind of in the post-World War II era, it's kind of been more along the lines in order to have the recession, it has to be focused on the job market, right? That you've got yeah. to see the labor market, you've got to see that erosion there. And as you talked about kind of the early on was the restocking of employees, specifically in services, at small businesses, you know, like, what is it that the bulk of the creation has been at like 100 or fewer employees, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so um, now let's bring in the banking system. Right. And so what we've seen with the failures with some of the, you know, either the community banks or the regional banks, and they're still more under duress right now. What do you think about the impact of the slow slowdown in credit in these areas, potentially? How do you think about that trickling through this kind of that's not talking about the mega caps, but more of the small to medium enterprises that are relying upon financing from these institutions. And so does that change your outlook for the labor market or how that goes to the overall economy? Or do you think it's just 
this is part of the log and variable lags and they're just materializing. So I think it's, that's a tough, all right, that's a tough question, right? So I think one thing we can all agree is that. We're hard hitters here. You got the heavy hitters. <laughs> you said we're the hard hitters on our questions. <laughs> uh, so, all right, you definitely expect in any uh, rate hike cycle that bank, the bank credit channel should be one, the one, one of the channels that through which uh, policy slows the economy. Now, generally speaking, what you always expect to happen is that as the Fed starts raising rates, banks realize that tough times are coming. They don't want to lend to less credit worthy borrowers. And so you see uh, credit standards tighten. You don't necessarily have to see a lot of bank failures to do that, right? So bank failures, when you look at the whole list of, you know, by some tallies, there are a dozen channels of monetary policy transmission. Bank failures is not one of them, at least in the textbook. Um, now, that is contributed, bank failures, and the behavior of other banks as they observe this will contribute to that standard bank lending channel that will see tighter credit. And you know, earlier we were mentioning that, um, and I guess this kind of circles back to the same point, is earlier I think we were mentioning that this Monday we will get probably the most anticipated senior loan officer survey that I can recall. Uh, and it was, I love the uh, name. I love how the acronym is SLUS though. It just, it seems like, I don't know. It just, in this environment, it just feels like a good acronym. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. So it's senior loan officer opinion surveys. That's where you get the two O's from. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that was, they asked banks, their credit, uh, availability, uh, terms of credit, and basically in April, late April. Uh, the interesting thing is the prior sluice uh, was from January, and that already uh, was uh, about a standard deviation above normal. So you already saw a pretty significant tightening uh, in the Q1, the January survey. And actually, if you put uh, the sluice into a simple recession probit model, that would Point, I forget it's something like an 80% recession probability over the next year. So already before SVB, you were seeing bank credit uh, availability tighten in a way consistent with past recessions. Now, presumably, yeah, I just want to tell our listeners to a probit model is not something that most people are probably familiar with, but it's just essentially a binary type model. Do you have one or not? And then that's what yeah. it's trying to do. Um, just trying to break down, you know, econometrics for our, our listeners today, Mike. Yes, yes, sure. Thank you. It has nothing to do with like a colonoscopy or anything else. Yeah, it sounds really bad. If you got <laughs> slews and probing, it's just not good together. Right? Uh, so yeah, it's a simple recession forecasting model. And and um, I think when we get the next solution on Monday, that'll probably point to something like 19 you know, over 90% probability of recession. Um, so, uh, but as I said, it's not normal, but it is definitely the, the number of bank failures we're seeing now is not like a part and parcel of rate hike cycles. Um, but it is, I think, you know, it's all obviously pushing in the same direction. Makes us feel, uh, you know, even with the comments earlier about uh, you know, self-defeating prophecies still feel okay with an outlook that sees a recession starting in the next four quarters, which is our view for what's going on. How much of this uh, 
of the current stress that we're seeing in the in the banking sector have to do with the the system of banking that we have, namely the fractional reserves? Do you think it's it's going to bring this under the spotlight again, uh, just based on what we've seen? How do you see that fitting in? Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that uh, the narrow banking uh, school, I think, got a um, uh, narrow banking school. Uh, I thought, you know, they had some um, a bit of momentum after the GFC for obvious reasons. Uh, but for whatever reason, narrow banking never really seems that popular. Um, and uh, I think there was a referendum in Switzerland, was it 2014 for narrow banking and they voted it down. Uh, so, you know, it's interesting to, to think about whether that would actually narrow banking makes a comeback. Certainly there's a lot of academics uh, and I, I forget the list, but it's a lot of prominent academics who, uh, you know, would, would uh, advocate what used to be called the Chicago plan of going back to narrow banking. But um, just given, you know, uh, if it didn't, if it didn't get catch wind after the GFC, I'm not sure it's going to uh, take off now. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I would, I would, yes, I, I definitely think this is going to result in, you know, different regulatory response, questioning questions about whether tailoring for bank size is actually appropriate given, you know, the core correlation among smaller banks can create as many problems as a failure at one big bank, right? So I think tailoring regulations for bank size is going to be, um, I think, scrutinized here. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of when I, when I, first thought about SVB signature when that all happened. That's so I was like, you know what? I think the cost of capital goes up. I think regulation creeps in through that. And you're starting to see it though, but like, you know, we're talking about tailoring to size, but it was like, how, how is a $200 billion bank, you know, in terms of asset base, how is that considered small or irrelevant, right? Uh, in all of this. And so, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's easy to say with the benefit of hindsight, you know, what happened, but as you think about the credit markets too, and we're talking about this through these smaller channels, do you think there's a disconnect between what we're seeing and what I'll call the capital markets, you know, like the larger, the investor grade corporate bond market, the high yield corporate market? Are you seeing a disconnect between that and what we're seeing potentially on this credit side? Or is that just a little premature to be drawing conclusions between these two markets today? Yeah. Um so I might be getting a little bit out of my wheelhouse here, but I do find it interesting that, and this kind of comes back to the recession modeling, is that um, if you look at, uh, you know, uh, just interest rate markets, right, treasury markets, whatever you want to call it, uh, most of those models are showing, you know, well over 50% chance of recession um, in the next year. I think the, the Federal Reserve's favored near-term forward spread model is something like over 95% probability recession. Uh, models I see of credit spreads are not really flashing uh, maybe a little bit of yellow, but not the, the yeah. amber or red alert that, uh, that, that the treasury market is flashing. So it does feel like, um, yeah, that there is a bit of a disconnect there, at least as I look at the signals those two things are sending about 
the real economy, which, you know, again, is what I probably focus on a little more. I mean, are you seeing it? Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, do you see it differently or what's your? No, I, I feel that, you know, there's just kind of this, um, I, I think the credit markets, they're focusing on what you started with is that it's that term financing, right? And so if you're financed out for a few years, you know, again, if you don't have a principal payment, you just got to service the debt and your debt service coverage is low or high, right? Because your interest rates are low. And so I think that's part of what the credit markets are focusing on. But I, I do see it being a disconnect between the rate side. And like I said, if, if I'm looking at a two-year treasury at 375 today, that tells me rates need to be meaningfully lower at some point in the near future to rationalize that pricing. So look, the rates market can be wrong. There is a disconnect, but you know, I think that's why we're all, as you said, it's the most anticipated slews, you know, uh, report that we're going to get because I think that that's an insight into the availability. And you know, when I look at like something like the NFIB report, um, and again, I can never remember what that stands for. People tell me it all the time, and I know you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I look at that with credit tightening, the availability of credit. I mean, these are flashing that there's a credit problem in the smaller segment. So I think that's where if the SLUs confirms that, I see a big disconnect there. And this restocking that you're talking about, you know, even though we talk about hospitality and leisure, I don't think it's like Marriott International or Hyatt that's doing all the hiring. It's it's the smaller and medium enterprise. So that's where I, I'm wondering, are we getting a different signal from the smaller pockets of the economy, which is more broad based. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the capital markets for that to be, you know, justified, you'd have to say that while those, not only would those companies be okay because they're not as dependent on bank financing, but they won't get sucked down by the broader uh, weakening and the overall economy that's primarily, you know, hitting at least initially the, the SMEs. Right. And then maybe maybe the other way to think about it, again, I'm not a big fan of this argument, but I've heard it from especially from credit folks. That's why it takes all kinds of moves around. But maybe it's like, you know, rate cuts are coming. The curve's going to come down. And so the yields are right. Just the spreads are too tight. But the prices aren't going to really go down because that. I mean, that that's bull market talk. I always say from credit <laughs> folks. But, you know, because, um, look, the curve is already reflecting lower yields is what I'm arguing back to them. So. I mean, I just I see like if we're talking about, you know, you saying that you, you believe there's a, a meaningful probability of recession in four quarters, then why are high yield spreads below average? Right. You know, that's what I, I struggle with. And some of this is like I always just think of average as 500 because it's where CDX prices, um, you know, we're in the high 400s today. But that's not recession spread levels. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so. That that's the thing, you know. What if I could if I want to find a market that's reflecting recession, it's commercial real estate, office related assets, right? And everybody's like, well, I know that, right? But that's a pocket where you can see it. And so I do think there is some differentiated approach here. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, that's why I was asking, do you get are you getting a signal from the smaller banks at this point, these regionals? Does it cause you more concern than it did, let's say, two months ago? Um, so un unfortunately, you know, the data we have is not great, right? We have yeah. the week, and we started off by talking about the weekly HA. Um, you know, that also gives us a, uh, not only the deposits, deposits at, after the first initial shock, 
deposit small banks have uh, been pretty steady, actually. Um, I think it's a little hard to interpret the lending numbers, at least initially in a credit uh, credit shock like this. And I think we all learned that lesson in 08, where early on after Lehman, bank lending data shot up. Well, it was people drawing down their revolvers and you know hoarding cash. So, um, you know, I think it's it, you have to treat the lending number with some caution here because that's not just going to give you a simple uh, read of um, of bank credit supply. Uh, and which again is one of the reasons I think the sluice is going to be looked at because you know anytime you're observing a variable, you don't know if it's you have that's the intersection of supply and demand, of course, yeah. and you know, Sluice tries to at least qualitatively tease out what's happening on the supply side, which is what we're all, I think, you know, scratching our heads about and thinking about the outlook for the rest of the year. Are there any other indicators that you're you're keeping a close eye on? I mean, we've talked about a whole host of them and probably some esoteric ones that people don't hear about as often, especially when we do it by the acronyms there. But uh, you know, there, there's a lot of divergent views right now. They're based on some of these more traditional indicators like the yield curve. You know, just even the leading economic index on the year-over-year -year basis almost suggests that we're in the recession, but it certainly doesn't feel like we're in a recession. And if so, this is a recession. I think most of us would take it all day long, right? But uh, are there any other indicators out there that you're looking at to, to kind of watch the, the trend shift or the inflection point and just say, hey, this is it? You know, yeah, I wish I had some. I wish I had a better answer. <laughs> the magic. <laughs> Tell us the, the, secret, the secret sauce there. Yeah, the magic regressor. Um, yeah, we mentioned a bunch of them. Uh, Jeff alluded to the NFIB, uh, which is a small business um, survey. It has a bunch of interesting details in there. Um, there are some uh, some surveys of households that talk about credit availability, but I think we're really more worried about credit supply to firms rather than to households. Uh, yeah. Households would be in pretty good shape as it is. Um, so in terms of... Uh, in terms of credit, you know, the interesting thing is I remember after 08, we discussed, we being the community of, you know, uh, analysts and researchers that, geez, we didn't really have a lot of good ways to monitor this in real time. And then uh, not much has changed to actually get a good sense of how uh, credit supply is evolving. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe just going off the trail here a little bit of things. Um, I look, I mean, one of the we talked a little bit earlier about the jolts and uh, job openings get, get a lot of attention now, but it used to not be at all until Chair Powell started calling them out. Now, I remember like a month or two ago, I think there was a jolts number that moved the market more than the payrolls did the following uh, that same week. Uh, but I would say within there, the quits rate is something that is worth uh, keeping an eye on. That's in a lot of... Um, that's come down a little bit, right? And, and I mean, like, quits are a sign of like strength in the labor market, right? You quit because you, you think yeah, you can get something exactly. better, right? Yeah. Right. So it's a sign of strength, it's a sign of confidence among workers in the labor market. Um, you know, and if you're, if you're confident, you're probably going to demand pay raises. And if you're less confident, you may be a little more hesitant to do that. Uh, so that's come down. And I think, uh, and it kind of mirrors what you're seeing and the jolts and the job openings number. Uh, but when you use that quits rate and, um, you know, like wage inflation models, it, uh, it, it tends to outperform a lot of other variables. So, um, 
you know, I'll keep an eye on that to see if that keeps coming down. I think maybe maybe we can squeak by with this uh, you know, immaculate disinflation that, that uh, <laughs> doesn't hurt too much. Um, immaculate disinflation and the magic regressor. I feel like those are somehow going to end up in the uh, in the teaser for uh, for this episode, Michael. <laughs> I, hey, um, I always enjoy, you know, picking your brain. I think you, you guys do great work there, too. Um, before we let you go too, let me just ask you too, what is the one thing that you think that, you know, potential market participants aren't paying enough attention to, or you can take it the other direction and say, what do you think people are putting too much weight on one or the other? Hmm. Um, I would have said, well, I still think actually the debt ceiling is probably, um, in my opinion, uh, I just hear too many people I talk to, market participants, when I say I'm worried about it, they, they almost treat me like, ah, Sonny boy, don't you know how this works every time we, we're going to get to the, the last minute and a deal gets done. And I say, all right, well, you know, maybe, uh, except two things are a little different right now. Um, one, obviously, is the ability of a single member of the House to call a conference with a speaker. Uh, so even if you do have an 11th hour uh, deal, it's not clear that you couldn't have a snafu that then has another um, battle for the speakership. Uh, so that's one thing. And then the other thing is if too many people believe that line of reasoning that I just mentioned, well, historically, we know what gets Congress to kind of take these things seriously is uh, is financial market panic, right? I mean, certainly we all saw that after TARP, the first TARP vote, right? Now, if if everyone takes this blase approach, then maybe Congress doesn't think it's all that, you know, requiring of immediate action. Uh, so I I am, um, you know, as I said, maybe it's definitely not a under the radar issue. I'm sure it's, it makes every top five headline right now. But um, even so, I, I I think the risk is maybe underappreciated. Yeah, after watching uh, Speaker McCarthy, you know, take what was it, fifteen rounds to to get to that position, that doesn't instill a lot of confidence in the confidence of him or within him. But um, you know, I, I have to always remind everyone he is from my hometown. So, um, but you know, the one guy also from my hometown of Bakersfield is Dennis Lockhart, and uh, I did get to meet him once. I had dinner with him, and I was just really yeah. stoked to have two Bakersfield guys sitting there uh, talking shop. So, uh, great guy by the way, too. Yep. Um, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Uh, before we let you go to where can um, our listeners and our viewers get access to your information? I know you do a lot of stuff institutionally, but what is the best way to like, you know, be able to view what you're putting out there in the world? Uh, good question. So if you're an institutional investor and you have a relationship with JP Morgan, you can obviously go through your salesperson. Um, some of our stuff does go on our uh, the J.P. Morgan Chase public webpage. So uh, certainly, I believe, for instance, I think I'm going to have some little podcast after after payrolls tomorrow. So some of that is available on our, our website. Okay. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure as always. You know, I enjoy the conversation. Like I said, uh, however, I before we let you go, Sam has a favorite part of the show that he likes to do, and so I'm going to let him introduce you to that before. We'll let you get back to your to your to your job today. All right, Mike, in that favorite part of the show, it's called Sherman Says. 
it's where I will offer a series of alternating prompts between you and Sherman, to which I hope to get a top of mind response for. To give you uh, an example and pave the way, I'm going to give it off to Sherman with risk free assets. (laughs) Winning, right? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) they they have no risk and they're yielding, right? Um, We got debt ceiling issues. Obviously, Michael's concerned about it, but um, the biggest competition for running a bond business is the risk-free rate today. All right. Over to uh, you, Michael, with, uh, let's I, see I, here, regional banks. Oh, I was going to say. Oh, you I get a different we, one. You don't get oh, to you think get a different about one, yeah. these. Yeah, you don't okay. get to think about these. No, no, everybody gets a different one. No, no. You can't listen to me and then, like, you know, get, get a better response. We have to live with what we say. <laughs> Although you can parlay it like Sherm and just use it on the next, uh, whatever the next problems <laughs> too. So, um, regional banks uh, coming from a rather large bank, I wish our colleagues in regional banks well, <laughs> and I certainly hope that uh, you know. Yesterday, Powell said there are really three big banks that had them worried from the get-go, um, and uh, if that's right, uh, hopefully we past the worst year. Well, hopefully the three banks he's worried about were the ones that have been put in receivership. Oh, yes. uh, and it's not three more. Um, so uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But again, yeah. Uh, I'm with you. I, I would also say, because you say coming from a big bank, I would tell the regionals, welcome to the world of regulation. Right? Yes, that's true. That too. Yeah. All right, speaking back to you, Sherman. Speaking of colonoscopies. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sherman. He's probing in this answer. Here we go. <laughs> Uh, emergency cut. Not imminent, but it will happen. And I think the first cut is, 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 it's deep. I don't think it's the 25 on the path as we were talking about today. I think, you know, it's probabilistically weighted. Um, I think, you know, is it emergency? Is it planned? I think it's kind of emergency, but it'll be because it's late and we're going to have pain, as Powell says, that it's going to have to be deeper probably than what's implied. All right. Back to you, Michael, with Phillips Curve. Phillips Curve. Uh, broken. Uh, well, I guess I would say uh, I would repeat what, what you often hear in uh, uh, an academic seminars. To, to beat a model, you need a model. Phillips Curve is a pretty bad model, but we still haven't beaten it. Uh, yeah. That sounds good. Let's see here with Sherman, work from home. The new uh, new regime, um, although we all live in kind of hybrids, we're all sitting in offices, I think it, it has a powerful thing. Um, it has momentum, and but it hasn't been recession tested. And that's gonna be the model, I think, too, to see what happens uh, in that next recession. So um, we'll have to see. It also depends what the recession looks like. So, um, yeah. All right. I know you're trying to get me to say we can all work from home, Sam. I know that's where you're going with that, but no, not, not going to happen on, on tape with uh, compliance here today. Not me. All right. Over to you, Michael. Uh, deglobalization. Deglobalization. Uh, I would say so far more myth than reality. If you look in the data, just don't see any declines in trade shares. Um, I do believe in, you know, look, I think French shoring, 
uh, isn't if that occurs. And even that, it's yet to be determined. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call that deglobalization if you're moving operations from uh, China to Mexico or Thailand. That's still a pretty globalized world in my opinion. So right now it's it's a big word, uh, but we don't see it in um, in the data. Yeah, I agreed. Another big word that just makes me think of decoupling, which was thrown around a lot during the the eight oh nine era. And that was about emerging markets, right? They've decoupled from the world, right? Yeah. yeah. The only way to decouple from the world, Sam, as I tell you, is uh, you've got to go to another planet. So, (laughs) Not happening for me. All right, let's go back to you, Sherman, with 2% target. Um, It is one until it isn't. But I I thought Powell did a good job of saying that, you know, 3% is not acceptable. We have a target of two. He's telling you those are the guideposts that he's trying to get to. And I, I thought that was a, a, a different tone that he took there, too, because he's saying that our, our job is not done just because inflation is going to. He also knows base effects are about to really kick in over the next couple of prints. And I don't think he wants people to get so excited. So um, I think the 2% is the target. I think, um, you know, the postmortem on all of this is that average inflation targeting was a dumb idea <laughs> because you get this kind of spiral i mean maybe you disagree michael but i think that that's going to be the thing is that they're going to be staunch about it and look it's not symmetric you know three is way worse than one uh to them around the two uh you know kind of center point and so i think that um you know that is the target they're not going to get there this year um without a recession and so i think that it's just um he's staying the course and that's why the high rate trickling through and we're going to have to live with this higher interest rate regime for a while. All right. Over to you, um, Michael, with super core inflation. Uh, super core. So this is core services X shelter, correct? Yes. Uh, because super core gets defined in a lot of different ways. Uh, that is the latest, greatest super core. <laughs> you know, it's fine. Uh, I would probably prefer the median, but um, I think Supercore has some benefits right now. It will uh, probably outlive its usefulness, um, you know, by before long. Uh, another thing I would say is that this idea that, well, Supercore seemed to be a way for Powell to kind of talk about the fact that he wanted to see a softer labor market without saying he wanted to see a softer labor market. Um, uh, but as I said, it's, I think it has some uses, but I would, you know, if we're going to do this, uh, in a way that's going to be useful still in a couple of years, I think something again, like a median or a trim mean is probably a better way to exclude influential out- outliers than, you know, coming up with ad hoc things like Supercore. Uh, this well, I, I, always, I, I joked internally about it. So like, you know, Supercore is like, it's the it's like the inverse of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's like, who needs shelter? <laughs> who needs oil? Who needs energy? Who needs food? <laughs> you know, if there's a water component, I'm like, it's pretty much Maslow's hierarchy, right? So uh, it's like, let's just chop the pyramid down. Who needs that? If it's just healthcare and education, those are stable. They just grow yeah. at the same rate all the time. So anyway, uh, uh, jokes aside. All right, we got one last one. Let's put it in the speed round. One more for each of you, Sherman, free markets. Let them, let them be, let them be free. 
I, I don't know if we have them. I mean, we've been so, you know, that's the problem is that we all talk about capitalism and free markets, but we're afraid to let anything fail. Um, and so, you know, we all fail at times, maybe not Michael, you know, but uh, we've all failed a little bit here. And so um, failures are growing and, and you learn from it. So I, I guess I'll bring that back to you to say what Powell said yesterday is that we're constantly learning. We're learning from our mistake. There is something about the humility coming out of Powell that I, I just feel that it's a little bit different, that tone, and it makes me feel better. Markets don't like it. They get more neurotic around it. But, you know, this idea that it's all, all they're like omniscient and they have this all-knowing presence all the time, you know, I think it, it's nice to see. So anyway, that wasn't your question, Sam, but that's where I took it. Yeah. Um yeah, and it wasn't a speed round either, but uh, let's go, let's wrap it all up here, Michael, with a uh, favorite philosopher. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> well, when I was studying, it was probably Husserl. Um, I'd say maybe Richard Rorty. Look it up. Yeah. You, you definitely surpassed our knowledge here, so um, we will be looking that up too. So, Michael... Thank you for the time. Thank you for bringing it full circle back to uh, the philosophers <laughs> as well. Uh, for our listeners out there, this is Michael Faroli. He is J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. economist. Um, you should go to their website, check out the data. Um, further, we got more episodes of the Sherman Show out there. You can catch these on our YouTube channel, youtube.com backslash double line capital. Uh, we obviously have these where uh, podcasts are served out there on the iTunes, the Google, the Stitcher. SoundCloud, um, some other stuff that Sam does where you listen to his techno music on the side. Um, and so in general, uh, if you need more, if you, if you want more of these, you can go out there and find them. Also, it's on the Double Line website, doubleline.com. Michael, thanks for spending time with us today. It was Thank a you. pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Okay, yeah. and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah. All right. The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Liability, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2023. DoubleLine Capital.